All right, welcome back to the lineup. Today, we're going to finish off our MLB season preview. A couple episodes ago, I was joined by Josh Goldman, and we broke down the National League East in the context of the Bryce Harper trade. And then Pete and I hopped on, and we wrapped up the rest of the NL, or the yeah, the National League, the last episode. Today, Pete's back here with me, and Josh is also coming back on, and we're going to talk about the entire American League. And this is, of course, just in time for opening day. We had to delay the recording of this by a couple days, but we're getting it done just in time with uh, not a day to spare. So, guys, how are you doing, first of all? I thought we would we'd first start out by talking about, just because opening day is right around the corner here, our favorite baseball memory. And while you guys think of a good answer to that, I'll start us off. I've got a lot of baseball memories, like you guys, I'm sure, from attending baseball games and playing baseball. One of the ones that I most remember, though, is the multiple times that my dad would take me and my brother to Frederick Keys games. The Frederick Keys that play in Frederick, Maryland, and we, we live pretty close to there. It's a single-A affiliate, or maybe double-A now, but at the time it was a single-A affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles. So super cheap tickets, super close to the action. We'd go there and get cheap baseball hot dogs and just watch players play. Um, it was really fun when Orioles players were there on rehab assignments. So like Brian Roberts, I don't know if you guys remember, Brian Roberts had like a really good couple yeah. of years for the Orioles, the second baseman. He would do rehab assignments there in Frederick. We get to watch these guys and get, you know, baseballs signed by them or whatever. And the the Keys would do these fireworks nights too, where after the game they would just do fireworks. It was just a really good time. Lots of solid memories. And one of, I think, one of the examples of how how great baseball can be on an American summer night I'll never forget those times in the Frederick Keys ballpark. What about you guys? I have two memories here. And the first one was when I was I was maybe eight or nine, and I was living in Seattle, Washington. And my first love of a baseball team was the was the Mariners. And we went to a game uh, to see the Mariners back when Ken Griffey Jr. was playing and Edgar Martinez and Randy Johnson and all like the big Mariner stars of the nineties. And they were doing a particular giveaway that night where they were going to give away a bat, a full size bat that had Ken Griffey Jr.'s signature sort of engraved on it. And we got there and there was a huge line and I was so excited. I was with my mom and dad and my sister and we got in line and my dad decided that we needed to get some food before we went into the game. Well, we got out of line, and when we got back in line, there were no more bats. Oh, no. So I did not get a Ken Griffey Jr. bat. But oh, the no. reason that Terrible. it's such a good memory for me is because my dad spent most of the game walking around the stadium trying to find me a bat. Oh, it's dedication. And I didn't get one, but I just have such fond memories of growing up and watching baseball with my dad and the fact that I'm even getting a little emotional right now, the fact that he would take the time to, I mean, it's what dads do, I yeah. think. And now that we're all dads, I think we can we understand agree, now but, for sure. Yeah. But he spent most of the game walking around trying to figure out a way to get me this bat. I never got one. My, my next door neighbor had one. So I gazed longingly at it every day <laughs> for the, like the rest of the summer. Uh, but then the other favorite memory is, was actually with, with Peter. We went to the Nats opening day, uh, in 2005, got tickets and sat in the outfield. And you and, heckled uh, Niger Morgan nonstop. Yeah, he wasn't there yet, but <laughs> yeah, when he got, when he did get there, we we heckled him quite a bit. Quite Peter, a bit. what about you? 
Uh, yeah, so obviously that 2005 with you, my friend, was uh, just something else. I mean, George W. Bush throwing out the opening pitch, RFK Stadium. It was it was so exciting to be there on the cusp of something that that memory will, will absolutely stand out to me. It's funny you guys both brought up memories with your dad because that's exactly what kind of came up as I was thinking about it oh, as nice. well. Um, kind of twofold. Uh, Zach, I love that you talked about the Frederick Keys. I don't know if you knew in Fredericksburg, obviously, Josh, you were familiar with this back when you lived in Fredericksburg, or uh, when you lived in Fredericksburg, not too far away was the Potomac Cannons. Oh, okay. Um, nice. Who were the single A affiliate at that time. Uh, I cannot even remember the team that they were the single A affiliate for. They eventually became the Potomac Nationals. Um, but until 2005, that was the only baseball we had in the, the DC metro area, really. Um, so going down there, uh, my parents let me do like birthday parties with the Potomac Cannons where they bring the cake to you in the stands. They give you the free little souvenir baseball, which oh, ironically so I still have. And it was, it was just awesome. I remember um, Cub Scouts would go there all the time and we would do, we'd be able to, to hold the colors. And I mean, you guys know you do a ballpark tour. You want to walk on the outfield grass and we could walk on the outfield grass. And I just remember my dad letting me go to as many games as we wanted to. Um, we did Sunday afternoon games. It was just, it was awesome going to see the Potomac cannons. Um, and then ultimately going out to St. Louis growing up as, as Cardinals fans, um, going to some of those games and seeing my heroes like Chipper Jones and Jason Isringhausen, uh, and seeing all these guys that, you know, it was just one of those things that there's, there's nothing like baseball, uh, with your dad or with someone special in your family that kind of all those lumped together as I think about all these experiences, uh, with, with baseball and, Man, I'm I'm so happy it's back this week. I love it. Me too. Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to be conscious of this as I now am a father, and I'm trying to take my girls to sporting events, especially baseball, because I have such a special love for baseball. This weekend, we're actually going to a UT Longhorns game, which will be fun. Nice. They're really excited about it. They'll probably not remember this 10 years hence, but you got to start them young, and we'll just keep going, and eventually they'll just grow into this memory of always going to baseball games with dad, so it'll be really fun. Well, should we start the MLB season preview for the American League? Let's, Let's do get it. to it. I think we should start with the American League East, and there's no more natural starting point, I think, than the defending champions, the Boston Red Sox. They went 108 and 54 in the regular season last year. But the significant thing for their offseason is that they had no significant pickups. Now, they're obviously returning a lot of great stars like Mookie Betts and J.D. Martinez, who I think was the best signing of the entire offseason last season. But they're losing Craig Kimbrell, so they're basically keeping the same talent minus a good reliever. I think there are a lot of questions about their bullpen. I think there are also some questions about whether or not they'll experience some regression. Is Nate Eovaldi's performance for real? Can Dustin Pedroia really come back? I think there are, there are significant question marks here that at least make that make the question of repeating their 108 win total in the regular season a pretty tough sell. I do think that the Red Sox are in position to compete for the division. I think they'll have trouble replicating last year's success, but that's my initial read. What do you guys think? I think that you're absolutely right that their lack of urgency in the offseason is a little interesting. I think that in addition to losing Craig Kimbrell, who you know, maybe they'll still sign him again. He's still unsigned, you know, mere days before the season starts. They also lost Joe Kelly. And I read somewhere that, you know, those guys accounted for something like 33% of their their bullpen right. uh, production. That's not good. No. That's not good. Um, I think that there's a, there's a great article on The Ringer that was published last week, I think, about whether or not standing pat and doing nothing 
is going to be beneficial for them. And they do a nice breakdown of teams that have done similar things in the past where they don't make a lot of moves in the offseason after winning the World Series. And the results are not great. Yeah, it doesn't, like doesn't 50, work out well, generally speaking. I mean, yeah, it's I like think, 50% yeah. that, that make the playoffs again the next year. Right. And I think it's especially so in baseball. I know that article looks at baseball specifically, but in baseball, you just have so many black swan events that are unpredictable and injuries happen. You also have guys who just have breakout seasons and then guys who have really long slumps and you can't predict, obviously, when those things can happen. You can try to get at that. You can try to incorporate some predictive analytics into anticipating when people are going to peak and things like that. And teams are good at doing that now, but ultimately it's going to come down to a lot of luck and timing. And the team that wins the world series normally is the beneficiary of really good luck and timing. And I think the Red Sox, not to take anything away from them, very talented club. And I think they deserved every bit of their, their pennant and ring that they got last season, but it's just hard to replicate that baseball is a challenging sport and it is a, it is an unforgiving sport. And there's a very slim margin for error, even on top of that luck and timing that you need to win a championship. Yeah, I think the, I think as we look at the Red Sox, the the lack of offseason moves has to be a little suspect. But I'd say at the same time, they still have a lot of bright spots that I think are absolutely going to keep them very competitive with the Yankees. I agree with you, Zach, that I don't think they're necessarily going to match up dollar for dollar with the Yankees in, in production this year, I think. Uh, I think they're going to take a little step back, but I think we still have to go back and look at guys like Chris Sale, who I think is going to yet again yep. be a Cy Young candidate. Um, he's he's like criminally underpaid in Boston. I don't know how they're pulling this off, but he's only making uh, about twelve and a half million uh, before he hits free agency next year. I think you look his strikeouts per nine innings has come down over the last four seasons. I'm sorry, has gone up over the last four seasons while his ERA and whip have come down. Uh, I think that the starting pitching in, in Boston is still going to be very good and, and kind of keep them walking. I, I don't think letting Craig Kimball go is, is going to be that disastrous. Granted, they only have something like two saves from, uh, who is it, uh, Barnes and, and Brazier. So there, there's not a lot of experience there, but I think if they can get a, a solid enough starting rotation to start carrying them forward, uh, I think that they're actually going to stay stride for stride with the Yankees until at least the all-star break, where I expect them to falter a little, just as they, they hit the dog days of summer and, and they can't necessarily get a solid six or seven innings out of a starter. And they have to really start going to the back end of that bullpen and missing Joe Kelly. Um, it, it was very, very interesting to me that they didn't do a whole lot, but I don't think their offense needed a lot of work. So I, I think aside from letting the, the bullpen slide a little, Overall, I, I think they're still in a, a pretty good spot, honestly, and I really would be shocked if they're not in a wild card push here with 20, 30 games left in the season. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And to your point about Chris Sale, I I think that's a, a valid concern that you bring up. However, the late-breaking news of the last couple of days is that he did just sign a six-year yeah. contract. So it's a six-year, $160 million deal. I was listening to Buster Olney talk about this earlier today and yesterday, and the general consensus in the sports writers world, at least, is that that's a really player friendly contract. And so the Red Sox have basically flipped the terms before it was a very club friendly contract and they had really good production out of one of the best aces in the majors. Now they're on the hook to pay him $160 million over the next six years, including in his age 34 and 35 seasons, $27.5 million of average annual value or of annual value. So... It'll, it'll be interesting. I don't think it affects... Well, it certainly doesn't affect the Red Sox this season. He's only making $15 million. He's not counting that much against their cap. But starting next season, 2020, that, that, that number jumps to $30 million, And that's when it could start to 
to come into effect for the club. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think there are some questions about Sale. He's clearly one of the best, but he kind of faded on the backstretch there, and there was some... It was never really clear what was going on, but some, some shoulder shortness. He throws from that weird arm slot, and people have speculated for a long time that makes him more prone to injury. It hasn't happened so far. I, I watch him pitch. What is he, six foot four? I mean, he's a tall, gangly guy. A tall guy. And when he throws as hard as he does, I'm just like, how does his body sustain this? He's made it work so far with the you know with some, some small injuries along the way. I think it's just, it's reasonable to think that there are some good reasons to have skepticism about how durable he is. With that said... The Red Sox obviously have medical staff who are all over this and probably have way better data than you you or I do, you know, just prognosticating from our our studio here. So, yeah, we'll see. It'll be interesting. I do want to talk about the Yankees. I think they're the winner of the American League East. Some people are really bullish on the Rays. I'm a little bit less so, although I am, I am high on the Rays. But I think the division winner is going to come down to the Yankees or the Red Sox. Just like last season, I think we'll have a good race. The Yankees gave us a good race for the first half and then kind of tailed off as Boston really took off last season. But the Yankees, people forget, they still won 100 games. So yeah. the, the American League East had two 100-game winners last year. And then, of course, the Yankees uh, did not do well in the postseason. They really kind of suffered down the stretch. And Gary Sanchez had a terrible year. And Judge had some health issues. Severino had some health issues. He's still having health issues. But they also upgraded their rotation, added James Paxton. And the big thing with the Yankees that I think is important to point out is that they have, hands down, the best bullpen in baseball. Obviously headlined by Araldis Chapman, but then Dylan Batances, Zach Britton, who, if he can if he can regain his 2015-16 form, will will be the headliner in that bullpen. He was untouchable that, that year before he had some injury issues. And then Adovino and uh, Tommy Conley, who's lesser known, but very effective as well. So... Uh, by far the best bullpen in baseball, uh, certainly by fan gosh projections as well. And then Jordan Montgomery's on track to return from Tommy John. He'll come back at, around the halfway point. They did some interesting free agent signings as well. DJ LeMakeu, Tulo Witzke, uh, Luke Voigt did really well in 39 games last year. If he can keep that up, he'll be a major asset to the club. So the Yankees have done some really interesting things and have built a super strong bullpen that I think will make them, at the very least, very competitive with the Red Sox. And it's going to come down to, just like it did last year, one of these clubs will win the division and one of them will get a wild card. Yeah, I think the thing about the Yankees is that the bullpen is more important than I think people give it credit for, especially at the beginning of the season. But I think about the Nationals the past couple of years, they didn't have a set closer and it didn't work out for them. They didn't have anybody that was proven and they got to the season and said, we're going to try it with someone who doesn't have experience and it didn't work. And they went through a bunch of different people until they finally got Sean Doolittle a couple seasons ago at the trade deadline. I think having an experienced bullpen, especially with someone at the back, like Araldis Chapman is a huge benefit. That's going to win them more games than having a dominant starting rotation. Ultimately. Right. I, I don't think the Yankees are going to win 100 games again like they did last year. I actually don't see a 100-game winner coming out of this division because I see the Rays getting a little more resurgent. I think Toronto is going to be a lot better, especially once they call it Vlad Guerrero. So I think this is going to be a more competitive division, not top to bottom because Baltimore's still not going to be there. But one through four, yeah. I think it'll be uh, a little more competitive. Uh, the storyline that I'm really watching, uh, one of the ones that you pointed out, Zach, was the the resurgence of Gary Sanchez, if that's going to happen. Yeah. I absolutely think that he is going to come back 
looking at those 2018 stats, they're, they're hard to fathom about how badly that season went for him, which is just so mind-boggling with what we were expecting him to do last year. But I really want to know if Troy Tulowitzki can can hold it down until uh, Didi can get back this year um, and, and be that anchor again while this team is starting to feel their way out here for the first 30, 40 games of the season. And if they can provide enough stability that the Yankees aren't going to start behind the eight ball and be six games back on the Red Sox before right. we hit Memorial Day. That that could be disastrous for this team because they have a great offense, but exactly like you guys said, really a lack of a great starting rotation means that that you can't necessarily go on a huge run because a bullpen can't pull you through 15 games. It's, right. it's a solid starting rotation that's got to get them going. So I'm really interested to see how this first month, month and a half of baseball goes. We've seen teams come back from, from the all-star break and make unbelievable runs in August. But I don't think the Yankees are really built like that this year. So I think they need to come out of the gate here uh, pretty strong to, to do really anything against this Red Sox team. But overall, I think it's going to be much more balanced than we've seen in the past couple of years. I think that's a good point. The The Red Sox and the Yankees have maybe not equivalent, but at least roughly parallel offensive capabilities. I think it does come down to their pitching staffs. And I guess the question is, would you rather have a, you know, B plus A minus starting rotation like the Red Sox have and a D minus bullpen? Or would you rather have an A plus bullpen and like a C plus starting rotation? And I don't know the answer to that. I think your your point's well taken, though, that you need starters and you need starters to carry you through so that you're entering the sixth or seventh innings with a lead. And you don't, you know, because the the bullpen guys that come in are not going to generate runs for you. <laughs> All they're going to do is prevent more runs for being added to the opponent's total. So if you're already giving them a deficit, they're not going to do much for you. Zach, that's a pretty good segue to the uh, Tampa Bay Rays who don't always employ a starter. <laughs> yeah, tell us about that, Josh. So last year they sort of revolutionized the concept of this opener where they would start a bullpen person for the game and then have them go, you know, once or twice through the through the uh, the um, the lineup and then they would bring in a more traditional starter to take over for like innings two through six or seven and then bring in their back end bullpen guys. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know really what to make of this concept. I I wanted to ask you guys, I mean, obviously it worked somewhat for them, but then they also just paid Blake Snell, the reigning uh, AL Cy Young winner, $50 million, uh, you know, for the next five years. And he's going to be one of their, their major, players and he's a starter so i don't really know what their plan is what do you guys think of the opener concept to to me i i don't know it it almost feels like we're we're still putting lipstick on a pig here and trying to mask uh, a huge deficiency on the back end of your team by kind of coming out of the gate with it it's almost like you're gonna sit your your starters in any other sport in order to get them a little more rest so that they're ready to go in the second half or, or however we want to call this of a game. I I think it's I think it's helpful for a couple weeks. I don't think it can be a long-term strategy just because exactly like we just talked about over a season, I think in a game, you really need to be careful about starting yourself out where you're not kind of bringing your best foot forward in the third, the fourth, the fifth inning, that, that you really can't start behind that early in a game. I, I think it's a dangerous season model. I like it for a week or two when you're going down to a four-man rotation uh, or you're in some kind of an elimination scenario where we got to win today, we got to win tomorrow, uh, but we're not trying to project out for the next month. I I, I think there's a reason why we've, why we've managed rotations like this for 130 years. And I'm not saying that the way we've always done things is always the right way to do it, but I think you got to come out with your best foot forward and you got to put a guy in there who can get you the innings, get you some stability, set up your offense, to play their game 
And then you come in and start trying to supplement and almost put band-aids on it with a with a good back end bullpen to exactly like Zach said, not generate runs, but kind of keep the keep the dam from breaking on you, right? Well, the last thing that I read is that the Rays are gonna have three starters. Yeah. And and that they're gonna go from there with the opener for their other, you know, two regular spots in the rotation. So clearly they think it's gonna work and they they think they can compete. So I think there's an alternative read on that is and that's that basically they don't think they can afford five really good starters right now. So maybe the three starters thing and the opener strategy for the other two is a is more born out of necessity. And the Rays have the misfortune of being a small market team that doesn't have the money to compete with the Red Soxes and the Yankees of their division. So they have to get creative. And I, I commend them for trying the opener thing. Look, I mean, I think baseball is a is a great sport. For many reasons, one of those is that it has appeal for the hardcore traditionalists and purists among us, and it has appeal for the hardcore analytics guys among us, and everything in between. And I, I like it when we see some variety there, and and we see clubs who resolutely want to stick to the starter model, and we see clubs like the Rays who are like, well, let's let's try this, let's just try mixing it up a little bit. I think the jury is out on whether or not this works. The Rays had some success with it last year. But look, as we all know, I mean, the reason that baseball has massive appeal for sabermetrics and stats enthusiasts is because it generates massive data sets over long periods of time. We have 162 games in a season and multiply that times the 30 teams in the league. And that's a lot of games every season. And then you can break it down to plate appearances and pitches thrown and everything in between. And so I think the jury's still out because this is such a new experiment. I'm in favor of experimenting and, and trying to see where we can get a competitive edge. But I do also agree with Pete. There's something appealing about the drama of the starter battle, right? You have Chris Hale versus Luis Severino. You have, you know, go back to Pedro Martinez versus Roger Clemens. I mean, these are these are storied, storied legends. And I mean, look at Mariano Rivera, the first ever unanimous Hall of Famer. He's right, enter Sandman. He's the the guy who comes in the ninth to shut it down. And if you shift to a model where Rivera's instead opening up your games and pitching innings one and two, and then the starter comes in to close it out, it's just, it's just a different feel entirely. And I would miss the old feel to be honest. Well, and, and it has to throw off the, the mojo of your team a little. If you adopt the raise model here and you've got guys like Blake Snell, Cy Young candidate again this year, right? Charlie Morton. I mean, we, we have guys who are decent starting pitchers. So for three days, we're going to go with this old school model that they grew up on. They've got five innings to generate some offense, maybe two or three, depending on how it's going and then sustain opposed to the other two days of the rotation where now we got to come out of the gate swinging, no pun intended, I guess it kind of was, <laughs> but to, to get ourselves set up and then we're going to get to our consistency and then we're going to play the long game for the next five innings come the fourth inning. You, you just have to wonder as guys are getting fatigued, as good managers are starting to make onesie twosie swaps with pinch hitting, pinch running, right. uh, defensive substitutions. Granted, I don't have nearly the athletic ability to even stand in a major league locker room, but to me, it just seems like it's going to throw off the flow of your team a little, and it's going to change your game plan so much day to day that you're going to lose a lot of that consistency. I worry. Yeah. I am curious about the, the feel in the clubhouse around this how do the how do the raise players feel about it i think you the biggest question is exactly what you're talking about i think pete do you have player buy-in and if you don't then then why are you doing this if, you, if your players are not on board it's it's going to be a really tough sell and i think their performance will reflect that 
But it it worked for them last year. And again, Tampa Bay, I think just out of necessity has to be creative in how they do it. I also think it's interesting to point out, not sure if you guys are tracking this, but Jeff Sullivan, one of the previous Fangraphs writers, he wrote something like three or 4,000 posts on Fangraphs over the course of his employment there. He was there for, I think, almost a decade. I read a lot of his work and listened to his Effectively Wild podcast a lot. He was just hired by the Rays in the offseason. So now he is a... He's a working in the baseball ops or analytics department for the Rays. He's he's a guy who has a very unique eye for baseball and ways of thinking outside the box. And I think that is reflective overall of the Rays' commitment to find an edge where they can't. This is sort of the the new money ball. Everyone's over the Billy Bean war stuff, and there are new ways to find edges, or people are at least trying to find those. Um, we should wrap up the AL East here. I do want to just mention the – I don't think we need to talk about the Orioles. They're going to be really bad, and that club is in a – Downward spiral, the the uh, Adam Jones, Manny Machado stuff highlights that. But Toronto, we talked about uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr. He's uh, maybe going to be called up, maybe not. He's injured now, so it's the, the, the potential controversy was sort of forestalled for the moment. But do you guys have an issue with keeping minor leaguers down? The, the Padres are the opposite side of this, where, where they're bringing Chris Paddock up, who hasn't even pitched in AAA yet, but he's just a really, really good pitcher, and they think, they can, they think that he can help them compete now. And news just broke today that Tatis Jr., who, Pete, I know you're a big fan of, and I'm a big fan of, is going to be on the opening day roster as well. So I like what the Padres are doing. They're clearly saying, hey, we think these, are, these guys are A, going to help us compete, and B, draw people to the park, and that's going to help our club. I don't know if they're driven by the ethics of, of not... Uh, manipulating service time. AJ Preller has gotten in trouble on issues of ethics before, so I doubt that this is an ethical issue in the Padres' front office. There probably is some selfish motivation for doing it. But as far as the manipulation of service time, do you guys have a problem with Toronto keeping Vlad Guerrero Jr. down until he's hit the the until he's past the sort of minimum service time for this year to count? The for our listeners who are not not aware of this debate, basically, if a minor league player uh, has it does not hit a certain threshold for service time at the major league level, then you can extend their their restricted free agency year another year. So basically, you can you can gain an extra year of them playing for your club and being contractually obligated to play for your club if you don't let them hit the major leagues at a certain gateway. My thinking on this is the this is what was established when the players union and the owners sat down and worked out the collective bargaining agreement. And the players union is really the one responsible for this because this was a very obvious shortfall in that plan. And I think it's, it's kind of, I mean, as much as we can say it's the wrong thing to do to keep Vlad Guerrero, Vlad Guerrero Jr. down in the minor leagues until July. Um, I think most people in the, in the position of these clubs who can be like, well, we can gain an extra year of a potentially generational talent, why wouldn't you do that, right? And if the players' union has agreed to this scheme for you doing this, it's not really manipulation of service time. It's really just you trying to not put yourself at a competitive disadvantage. And so I don't have a problem with it. I do have a problem with the clause. I think it's a dumb rule. And I think the service time should just be based on total time with the club, you know, from the moment you signed, you know, start a five-year clock or whatever it is. I don't think it should be based on how long you've been in the majors. Um, but I also don't, don't uh, fault the GMs of these clubs for keeping guys down in the minors to keep them for longer on their team. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think that the 
rule itself, I agree with you. It's not a good one. Uh, the the players union made a mistake there, but you can't you can't fault the teams for for playing by the rules that have been set. I mean, they did it with Bryce Harper. Um, the Cubs did it with Chris Bryant. You know, you can't fault them for playing by the rules. It's just it's so interesting how they have to sort of say say things that are clearly not true. Like, right. They that's, say that's true. That yeah. Vlad Guerrero Jr. is not ready for the major leagues. Right. Uh, OK, we all know that's not true. Very false. Um, yeah. I mean, you have and, you have Randall Grichik playing on your team. <laughs> like, don't yeah. tell me that Vlad Guerrero Jr. is not ready to be there. And when they call him up and it's, you know, one day shy, you know, one day past his service time. You're oh, gonna funny know how that, that works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, he was all of a sudden major league ready. Uh, he he took a nice shower the other day and he's ready. Yeah. You know, whatever. the Right. It's like it's ridiculous. But <laughs> you can't fault the teams for for doing that because they are technically playing by the rules. I think that this will be a major point of contention in a couple of years. Next negotiation they, for sure. Know, Absolutely. Uh, when they do the collective bargaining agreement again. And I think that this could be one of the things that leads to a work stoppage. Yeah. Not the main thing, but could be one of the things. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's definitely a point of tension between the players and clubs. The other major one, I think, is how there is, there is, uh, I think at least some players think there's some collusion going on between owners to drive market rates of free agents down. And guys like Craig Kimbrell are staying unsigned for long into the offseason. Bryce Harper signs with the club into spring training. It's Spring training is already well underway when the Phillies... Uh, sign the deal with Harper. So that's, I think, the other major point of contention. Anything else in the American League East before we go on to the uh, West and Central? Do the Orioles do better or worse than finishing 61 games out of first place this year? What do you guys think? Oh, man. I think they will do better only because I think the ceiling of the Red Sox is a little bit higher. I actually think the the Orioles do worse than they did last year, but I think they'll be, uh, I'll say, 58 to 60 games behind the Red Sox rather than 61. Yeah, I think the Orioles will be the worst team in the major leagues. And just two quick anecdotes about them. One, I don't even think they can be considered rebuilding because I looked this up and they have something like the 19th best farm system. Excellent. So they're not even they don't even have like a good farm system. And then the (laughs) other thing is that uh, they I saw this news because it was related to the Nationals, too. They picked up. uh, Nationals catcher Pedro Severino off waivers when he was cut from the Nats this spring after not finishing in their top four catchers in their depth chart. And he's likely to make the Orioles 25 man roster. All right. So that, that goes to show you how bad the depth of be. talent they have. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully Baltimore season ticket holders are not deterred. All right. American league central. Let's uh, step it up a little bit so we can finish up here pretty soon. Cleveland, Chicago, Detroit, Kansas city. And uh, wait, who am I missing? Oh, Minnesota, of course. Um, so the Indians, I think, are the heir apparent to win. I think if anybody's going to give them a run for their money, though, it will be the Twins. The Twins are kind of like the Brewers, uh, sneaky good, I think. Dozier's gone, but Williams Acedillo, really, really fun to watch. He doesn't strike out. He walks all the time. Uh, he can throw guys off, uh, throw guys out from behind the plate without looking. There's a, there's a good clip of him doing that. You should look it up, Williams Acedillo. Max Kepler, Eddie Rosario, Jonathan Scope, who was a good offseason pickup. Nelson Cruz, Byron Buxton, uh, when he's on. That's a lineup that can produce on any given day. It doesn't mean that they'll always produce on every given day, but they can, they can definitely produce. And Cleveland, 
didn't do much in the offseason to impress. And they only won 91 games. And they're starting off with Francisco Lindor, one of their stars, injured. Jose Ramirez fouled a ball off of his leg and injured himself with a uh, deep like bone bruise or contusion a couple days ago. So like, he's not going to be ready for this season start. So uh, Cleveland's kind of starting out with a disadvantage. And I'm not totally convinced they'll be able to hold off Minnesota. I think they will. But I also think that, that this is going to be a more competitive division than perhaps some people are giving, giving it credit for. What do you guys think? I think that uh, I read an article about Minnesota and about Byron Buxton specifically and how how badly of a year he had last year yeah. and how if he can even come back a little bit to what he showed in, in 2017, then he could help turn the entire club, you know, positively from that. So I'll be interested. I'll be watching him closely when, when I'm watching the Twins. And I think with regards to Cleveland, I just I don't know what they were doing this offseason. I mean, I I don't know why I was hearing Corey Kluber trade rumors. You know, if they're going to be the presumptive favorite in their division, why would they trade one of their best players? I don't I don't understand what they were thinking. And um, I think it'll be an interesting race at the top there. Yeah, I I hate to say this because it makes it so black and white, but this has to be Cleveland's division to lose. I think overall, this is probably the weakest division in baseball this year as I'm looking at it. I mean, yeah, I think Cleveland's exciting right. because of that rotation, right? I mean, Corey Kluber, Trevor, Va- Trevor Bauer, those guys should be Cy Young candidates again. They they have an okay bullpen. Francisco Lindor is going to be great. Jose Ramirez is going to be great. Both of those guys have something like an 8.0 war when I was looking a little while ago. Um they don't have much of an outfield, though, so defensively they could be in a little bit of trouble. But overall, this division is just very uninspiring this year. Um, and, and overall, I mean, I look at Chicago. I look at Kansas City. I look at Detroit. They are all rebuilding, and I don't know if any of them are going to get above 70 wins this year. I think it's going to be 1-2, and two, Cleveland, then Minnesota, and then 3-4-5 are going to be just depressing to watch. I mean, I, I think Kansas City – might actually be the worst team in baseball this year, even worse than the Orioles, just as I'm looking at this starting lineup right here. I mean, who besides Billy Hamilton is exciting on this roster in Kansas City? So overall, I'm kind of down on the the AL Central this year just because it's it's Cleveland again for what, the third, the fourth year in a row? Otherwise, it's it's pretty blah to me. Yeah, I totally agree about this being the weakest division. I will say, though, that there are a few things to redeem, at least the White Sox and the Royals. I think Detroit is going nowhere fast this year. I think it's going to be a tough season for Detroit fans. The White Sox, though, really, really bad last year, 62 and 100, negative 192 in run differential, which I think sort of under uh, undersells their, uh, or the record undersells how bad they were because of the run differential. But they have some exciting young talent. They just signed Eloy Jimenez to a longer deal. He was the the centerpiece of the Quintana deal that sent Quintana to the Cubs. So the Cubs offloaded their top prospect at the time. Eloy Jimenez is doing really well. He spent 108 games between AA and AAA last year, was th- hitting 337, 384, 577 with 28 doubles and 22 homers. So this guy can really hit. And... Again, there's the service time manipulation issue. We might not see him for a while, but if we do, and when we do, I think it'll be fun. They unfortunately lost one of their best pitching prospects, Michael Kopech, to Tommy John surgery. But they also have uh, Yohan Mankata, who was the centerpiece in the sale trade, to the Red Sox. So these are Mankata and Jimenez, two centerpieces of their rebuild. And they're at least going to be fun to watch, see if they can materialize. But I think the White Sox rebuild is a little bit behind schedule. When you think about the Mankata 
centerpiece in the sale trade. I mean, we we thought that the White Sox would be better than sixty two and one hundred at this point, um, but it looks well, like it looks like they may be repeating where repeating that year again this year. Zach, don't forget that the White Sox traded for Yonder Alonso to get Manny Machado, who they didn't get. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, so that was, maybe they were just putting all their eggs in one basket, and Machado uh, understandably decided he would rather play in San Diego than in Chicago. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I'll say on this division, and this this is kind of fun, the Royals. So, Pete, I agree with you that they're going to be bad. I don't think they're going to be quite as bad as Baltimore because the Royals, I think, are more like the... Rays, they're not going to be as good as the Rays at all, but uh, they're, they're going to be bad. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I think they're like the Rays <laughs> in, in recognizing that they can find value on the margins. And the, the fun thing that they're doing this year is just loading up on base dealers. They now have Billy Hamilton, who is with the Reds, but one of the fastest guys in the majors and one of the base dealer, best base dealers of the century. Whit Merrifield had 45 steals last year. Uh, Adalberto Mondesi had 32 steals in 75 games. That is almost uh, almost a game, or almost a steal every two games. Terrence Gore, another one. He hasn't stolen that many bases, but he steals them at a success rate of 87%, which is just outrageous. Uh, like I said, they added Hamilton. So I'm interested to see how they're gonna how they're gonna deal with this. If these guys can get on base, it's gonna be really really fun I was, to I was watch. I say you Royals. can't steal a base if you're not right. on first. Though. <laughs> I know it's true. <laughs> But, but swinging third strike, excuse me, you can get on base that way. Okay, swinging third. That's strike. one of my. I know people hate that rule, but that's one of my favorite like quirks and oddities of baseball. I love it. Um, anyway, so the the Royals will be basically what I'm saying is they'll be terrible in a very entertaining way. I'm excited to watch those Royals games on MLB.tv. To me, they're they're a must watch team just because of the potential for for uh, shenanigans. But but let me let me read some stats to you from here. I was looking at the lineup for the Royals. It looks really really bad. So there, I think you guys are familiar with Zip's projections, but for our listeners, it's invented by this guy named Dan Zaborski. Now he writes for Fangraphs. Um, he's been all over the baseball world, but uh, very, very good projection system. And based on the Zip's projections, we can look at the war, the wins above replacement, to try to figure out how good a player will be this year. Uh, to give you an idea, you know, Mike Trout between eight and ten war. That's kind of the your top tier. Your middle tier performer is going to be between you know uh, six and eight war. And then uh, your your good players between four and six, and your sort of um, average players are going to be between like one and four. Your replacement level are going to be zero, and then below below zero in negative war is below replacement level. You don't you don't want to be there. So the Royals uh, only have six position players who are expected to have a war greater than one. <laughs> That's not good. Only two are going to have a war greater than three. And no player on the Royals roster is projected to have uh, no no hitter on the Royals roster is projected to have a WAR greater than four. <laughs> By comparison, the Astros are going to have eighteen that projected projected greater than one, five greater than three, and two greater than five. So this gives you an idea of how far off the Royals are from the top of the major leagues. But that actually is a good segue into the AL West. I just mentioned Houston. Houston obviously won the AL West in a resounding fashion. They won 103 games, but had a run differential of positive 263. And I, I'm not making a prediction yet, but I think that Houston has a very good shot at winning the World Series this year. They seem to be going all in, and they've managed to retain some of the talent. They just actually signed a, a Verlander to an extension. So they've, they've been able to retain some of the talent. They locked down Bregman as well uh, just a, a week ago or so. 
So their their lineup now: Springer, Bregman, Altuve, Correa, Brantley, Gurriel, Reddick. I would not want to face any part of that lineup if I were an opposing pitcher. They have Verlander. They have Garrett Cole anchoring a top five rotation. Really good. And I th- I think that they'll go very far. Keep an eye on Forrest Whitley. He's a prospect coming up in their system. Very good pitcher. Uh, Houston, I think, certainly has the AL West in the bag. And I guarantee they're setting their sights far beyond that as well. What do you guys think about Houston and the AL West generally? I think that you're absolutely right. Houston is definitely the team to beat here. And... Uh, probably the team to beat in the American League as well. Um, I think that it starts with their the top of their rotation and Verlander and Cole, like you talked about. But they just have a lot of a lot of players who can who can play, especially um, you know with Altuve and and Springer and Bregman. So yeah, I'm looking for them to repeat as AOS champions and possibly have the uh, best record in the American League. So I'm I'm giving the Astros this division, but honestly, it's more out of a lack of competition, much like we talked about in the AL Central yeah. than anything else. You're you're absolutely right, Zach. This offense is awesome yet again. I actually have some questions about the the starting rotation, though, as I'm looking at, at what they're up against this year. So they lost Charlie Morton via free agency where I talked about him yep. going to Tampa Bay. They lost Lance McCullers Jr. to Tommy John. Um, so we're talking now Justin Verlander. Awesome. Getting up there in age. Uh, we're talking about Garrett Cole, who had a great year last year, surprisingly coming out of Pittsburgh. I don't see him repeating where he was. And then we talk in Dallas Keuchel. I mean, who, who are we talking about to really anchor this rotation is my big question for, for Houston more than anything else. They're, they're going to be great. They're, they're going to be elite in the division. They're going to compete with the Yankees, the Red Sox. But otherwise, I, I don't see the, this, this sounds very black and white and it's not intended to, but I don't see a wow factor as I'm looking at this team, other than a solid offense, a good rotation, not a great rotation anymore. And I think teams like Oakland who are not going to repeat the 97 wins they had last year are going to be able to chip away at this team a little more than we've seen in the past. And I I think Houston is going to benefit from the fact that the angels are still going to be the angels. And aside from Mike Trout, there's not a whole lot left, especially with Otani out here for the beginning part of the season. Seattle, I think is starting to rebuild. I think Texas uh, Texas, needs to rebuild. I don't know if they've embraced (laughs) that they're rebuilding yet, but overall I think, I think Houston is, the, the biggest kid on the block, not necessarily the most talented in the neighborhood at this point. Okay. I'll, I'll make one counterpoint, though, to your point about the rotation, and that's that... Uh, so I do think, actually, Cole is poised to repeat. I think he'll be very good. Yeah. I've, I've read some stuff about how the Astros went out and identified him in Pittsburgh, and basically they they thought they figured out, and I, I mean, it seems like they're right, that they, that they thought they figured out that Pittsburgh was mishandling him, that they identified ways, I believe to, that. ways to optimize his delivery, and prioritize his pitches and and tweak his pitches just so so that they could maximize what Garrett Cole can do. Because at one point he was a top prospect in baseball. I think he was a number one draft pick overall. I think I'd have to double yeah, check. He was that, real high. He was they were really high on him, and yeah, it did not work. Yeah, out it did well. work out in Pittsburgh. I mean, he was fine. It was serviceable. But Houston saw something they liked, and then what happened? He went to Houston, and it was like a totally different player. Um, yeah. So I think he can definitely repeat. Uh, okay. Verlander is. Getting old, you're right. Uh, and pitchers can hit a cliff when they get old. I mean, you know, Clayton Kershaw, Exhibit One, which is sad. Um, 
and and you're right about the other pitchers, I think. Uh, but also the Astros have shown that they just like Verlander, they're willing to go out and get someone down the stretch that they need. And so I think if we see a lackluster performance from their three, four, five starters, we could definitely see them go out on the open market at the midpoint of the season and pick up someone high profile just as a rental to get them through to the world. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the rest of the AL West, a few comments I have here, the Mike Trout deal. We haven't talked about that at all. But I, I love it, and not because I love the Angels, and not just because I love Mike Trout, but I love it because we've talked about this before, but I really hate to see the disappearance of the franchise player. And we yeah. talked about this a little bit in the context of Bryce Harper leaving Washington. As much as I like having him on Philly now, I would have liked to see him stay in Washington just and just say, look, this is, this is who drafted me. This is who believes in me. This is the city that loves me. I'm going to stay here. And that's what Mike Trout is doing. I think he wanted to avoid the circus that he saw of Machado and Harper this offseason and just say, like, look, this is where, look, I'm from Philly. I would, you know, I'm sure he'd love to play for, for the Phillies, right? He grew up rooting for them. He could go to all the Eagles games he wanted. Um, but. Yeah, everybody likes getting booed, right? So. <laughs> well played. But uh, on the other hand, LA is the team that drafted him. They saw talent when he was younger and no one else did. They they brought him up through their farm system and they've supported him every step of the way. And it's a place that he loves to play and he feels a connection to the fans and the other players. And the, I mean, he even mentioned the ballpark. He said the, the ballpark's a great place to play. I don't love that ballpark, but I'm glad that he does. And I'm glad that he feels a sort of rootedness there. So I love that he has basically said as one of the, well, certainly the best player today, a historic all-time great in baseball. This is where I'm going to play. I'm going to be on one team. And I think... I'd, I would love to see more of this happen across baseball. I don't think that the Angels are going to compete this year. Simmons is the only other headliner guy. Uh, I'm not confident in any other part of their team, but I am excited to see Trout continue to be a Los Angeles Angel. Yeah, and it seems like the Angels got almost a discount on him. You know, they, yeah, it does. Based right. on, they underpaid. Based, yeah. on his, based on his performance throughout his career so far, you know, he's probably worth, you know, maybe half more than he already got. So right. maybe like six hundred, seven hundred million dollars. So is amazing. to lock <laughs> him up at four thirty is is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't I don't want you guys to sleep on the Mariners who are already two games up on the, <laughs> the uh, AL West. So they are got a they head are start. beating the AL West and uh you guys don't sleep on them. Can't sleep on them. Uh, I, I did like Ishiro's farewell tour. I thought that was that yeah. was really classy, a great way for them to send him out. An all-time great. And it's it's crazy, too, to think about the fact that we saw this guy in his prime, and he is going to Cooperstown for sure. He'll be in the record books for forever. And uh, it, was, it was great to be able to see a part of that in his prime. And it was great to just be able to see him finish up his career last week. One he thing I wanted like to 25 items to Cooperstown. So I think he's banking on getting in the hall of fame as well. <laughs> I think it's a safe should. bet, safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I wanted to say about Oakland, since we didn't really talk too much about yeah. them was that, you know, they had a lot of success last year, um, based on picking up pieces that fit into that Moneyball type system where, right. you know, you identify what you need and get players who can give you that, you know, to me, I think that that is almost a little bit, uh, it's 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 much more difficult to replicate than than filling your roster with players that you know consistently perform because you're having to st- almost start over 
every year right, to try to find right. the players that are going to fit the exact pieces that you need. So that to me, if I was in the you know front office with with Billy Bean, I would be stressed every single off season and every single season having to try to replicate. And, you know, it, it is probably fun for them to some extent to look at who's available and what they need and try to fit pieces together. But gosh, I have to imagine it's stressful for them. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the problem you see with a lot of these systems is, I mean, think back to the movie Moneyball, which obviously was very dramatized. Billy Bean still had three or four veterans who weren't necessarily top performers, but they were guys who bought in, who could provide a little leadership in the clubhouse and and try to steer left and right. I mean, you look at this team this year, and exactly like you said, Josh, it's it's a lot of brand new pieces. I mean, we lost solid guys in Oakland like Jed Lowry. I right. mean, who who's going to step up and lead this team as they start trying to fit all of these different pieces together? Uh, I I think that is where this this could be a rough season for Oakland. I mean, the the starters of Mike Fears, Marco Estrada, Brett Anderson. I mean, who – granted, I don't know these guys, but who is the leader who's going to kind of help propel the system forward as they try to, uh, I don't I don't know, shoehorn everyone back together into, into a team and, and try to exceed expectations for a second year in a row? I think that's a great point. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. The only other thing I'll say on the AL West is the Texas Rangers. I talked about some of those Zips projections and wins above replacement. Their leader – According to Zip's projections, their leader in war is going to be Joey Gallo. And that's 2.6 war. And Josh, you mentioned this as well. I don't, I don't think Texas has acknowledged that they need a rebuild yet. But that's bad, for the record, if your projected leader has 2.6 war projected for the season. And on top of that, Gallo struck out 35.9% of the time that he went to the play last year. This is the the two or three true outcomes personified. Gallo, in my opinion, is not a fun player to watch. He's the opposite of Mike Trout, and uh, it shows. It ref- it's reflected in his war. So Texas uh, is gonna it's 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 gonna be in for it. I think the lineup that we'll see in uh, in the AOS is something like Houston, Oakland, Seattle, Los Angeles, Texas, just like last year. And uh, like I said, I would not be surprised to see Houston making a deep postseason run. And speaking of postseason runs, before we wrap up here, are you guys prepared to give give a World Series prediction? Team from the NL, team from the AL, and then a champion? Nope, but let's let's give it a try. <laughs> All right, Pete, you can kick <laughs> us off. Who do you got? Um, so out of the American League, I'm going to take the New York Yankees this year. Oh, wow. All right. Um, I, I no, think, say it ain't so. I. <laughs> I'm not saying that they're going to win it, but I think that they will be the last man standing. I think based on what we said about Boston, they will be a wild card team. Um, and I, I think Houston will put up the best fight, but I, I think it is the Yankees um, divi- or the, the Yankees this year coming out of the American League more than anything else, which hurts my heart to say, but I, I think it's going to be Yankees Brewers in that World Series Yankees, going back to our NL oh, predictions. Man. And, uh, and who wins it? Rooting for the Brewers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh, what do you have? Out of the American League, give me the Houston Astros. Oh, okay. And I think out of the National League, I'm going to take the Dodgers. All right. And you're going to get, uh, I think you're going to get the Dodgers oh. in the World Series. All right, nice. National League National League upset. Okay, I like your Houston Astros pick, Josh. I'm going to mimic that. So Houston Astros making it out of the American League. I'm going to make you guys happy with this next one. Make it out of the National League. I have the Nationals. There you go. Led by Juan Soto, the 20-year-old phenom. And I have the Houston Astros beating them in the World Series. I'm sorry. Uh, but that's my pick. 
Astros Nationals World Series, which I think will be a really fun World Series for the record. Awesome. I would I would awesome. enjoy those games uh, more than any World Series games since the uh, Cubs Indians matchup, which I thought was also a really fun series to watch. I think it would be of- really fun to see uh, Scherzer and Verlander pitch against each other. Totally agree. Teammates. Let's make it happen. Let's make some calls. Starters forever. Starters forever. <laughs> Down with the opener. All right, cool. Anything to add, guys, for before we close off? This is the last uh, last time we have for inputs before opening day hits us. So you guys have your MLB.TV subscriptions primed and ready to go? We're ready. This is not, Absolutely. A, not an advertisement. When, uh, when are we doing a live pod from the Las Vegas Aviators AAA affiliate or the Oakland A's AAA affiliate? We, we got to do a live pod. What is it, the Aviators? I thought it was the 51s. They changed it this Whoa. year. Whoa. Oh, that's yeah. lame. I like the 51s a lot more. I'll, the, uh, the I'll throw out a comment bad, card but, for you, buddy. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, hey, you tell me when, man. I'd love to get out there. Let's do it. Yeah, we'll do a live pod yeah, from the it. 51s. Um, let's do it when someone someone good's coming into town. Like, you know, get get Vlad Guerrero Jr. coming into town or something. We'll have to look yeah, at the schedule. Tebow. See what we can. Oh, Tim Tebow. There we go. Or uh, who else is... Who else, is, who else is having their service time manipulated? <laughs> we'll, we'll figure <laughs> it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Um, but yeah, guys, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, Josh, you are the host of the podcast. And yes. coming up soon, we have a little crossover event where the three of us are going to be doing some baseball movie rankings. Oh, yeah. So, so we, we picked a, a handful of baseball movies. I think we have 16 on our list. And the three of us are going to rank all of the baseball movies in a couple different categories, and then we are going to tell you what is the best baseball movie of all time, caveat the ones we had time to watch of these. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fun. So yeah, be a lot of fun. where can our listeners find that, Josh? The Popcast. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Just search The Popcast, and please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. All right, sounds good. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of The Lineup to finish up these MLB season previews. We'll be back coming at you with some more baseball commentary as soon as the season kicks off, but we're really excited for it. Hopefully you are as well. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Third String Pod. You can follow us all on Twitter as well individually. I'm at Zach Crippen. Pete is at Pete underscore Laclede. And Josh is the cleverly named at Goldman Standard. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, have a great week.